Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, it's playoff time, and that means we say goodbye to some teams and tell you which teams, what they need to do better, and what they did wrong, and what we can look toward as we look at 2021. And of course, our big throwback preview as all three series head to Darlington. But first, as always, this is episode 77 of Positive Regression. This is the Sam Hornish edition. David, Sam Hornish Jr. from Defiance, Ohio. Sounds like a cool place. IndyCar champion, Indy 500 champion, who, after a successful career in IndyCar, decided to give NASCAR a try. And that included a ladder climb to the Cup Series in the number 77 car for Team Penske. Uh, David, he didn't have, well, look, relatively, he did not have success at the Cup Series level, uh, some success in the Xfinity Series, but wh- what do you remember? What should we know? What, what's, what's to look at when Sam Hornish Jr. in the Cup Series? Hmm. This is a tough one to, to start. I, I, I will say that I was very excited about the prospect of Sam Hornish coming into NASCAR because, I'm a little selfish. I, I want to see all the best drivers compete in NASCAR. Give me your Lewis Hamiltons and your Daniel Ricardos, please. Uh, and, and Sam Hornish at his time in IndyCar was one of those guys, and he was American. And I thought he belonged to NASCAR. And when he came, consider the age. He left IndyCar before his prime. He was a NASCAR driver at age 28 and age 29, that seemingly should have worked out well. Uh, it didn't. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to think if there was like a movie that I was really looking forward to and was just let down by, but <laughs> that was the Sam Hornish experience for me. So yeah, I, I thought it was going to go a lot better than it did, but he had 167 starts at the NASCAR Cup Series level. That's a lot of starts. I mean, that this is, this was more than an experiment. This was, uh, something of a career. He crashed once every two races. That's not great. Wow. Uh, three <laughs> times, three times in five seasons, his production and equal equipment rating fell below 0.200. Sort of speaks to that entire era of IndyCar and former champ car guys attempting to assimilate to stock car racing. Ultimately, we learned it's difficult to go from a type of racing in IndyCar that features such a focus on precise car handling uh, to go from that to a type of racing where most drivers have a wide handling tolerance and tires wear an awful lot relative to IndyCar. It's a considerable difference. And frankly, a lot of these drivers failed to receive proper time in lower divisions to prepare. And I, I think that was kind of the the beginning of the end for Sam Hornish. He made just two starts at the Xfinity Series level before he started getting looks in the Cup Series. And regardless of any driver's upside, that's just not a lot of time to learn a completely new genre. And I'm not sure of the story behind that. I don't know if that was a Team Penske effort or Sam Hornish wanted to go straight to Cup. But either way, in hindsight, to me, that's where this started to go adrift. 
Yeah, and, and it's something I've always thought about with Danica too. I mean, I think in total, right? I mean, she probably has 150, 100, what, 80 total starts in a stock car, right? On an oval, like no, no one's going to succeed that fast, right? With, with no practice, if you will, or no experience. And I think that kind of applies to all the IndyCar people that came, came over. Uh, we've had, we've kind of touched on this before with Dario Franchitti, but we also mentioned Juan Pablo Montoya. He was probably the most successful. Remember Patrick Carpentier? Uh, it's just an, an odd era, right? Back then, uh, I guess the appeal was money. Would you say, right? David from IndyCar to NASCAR, there's a whole lot of money over there. And, and that's why you at least take a shot at it. Is the appeal safety also? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially back I then. Think so. yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think is AJ Allmendinger the last man standing for, from yeah. from huh. from this era of uh, of crossover? Yeah. And Juan Pablo uh, was a joy. I mean, it was a treat to watch him do his thing. Um, but you could neutralize Juan Pablo pretty well if uh, you just had a car that was a little too tight or too loose. Uh, he <laughs> needed it to be uh, very specific, and he may have been past his his best days at that point. Uh, and that's what made me optimistic about Sam Hornish. I thought the best was yet to come for him. And he had accomplished quite a bit uh, in IndyCar to that point. His career sort of went backwards. He did find some footing when he went down to the Xfinity series, winning races for both Team Penske and Joe Gibbs Racing. So he wasn't a complete slouch. Uh, we just, I, I just, I kind of wonder now if there had been a more deliberate plan for his assimilation again into a form of racing he'd never experienced, uh, what would have happened? There may have been a world in which Sam Hornish was competing for wins at the cup level. I always looked at it the reverse when you know the indie guys that came over and didn't f- quite find success. To me, tell me if this is fair. Did that shine a light on just how good some of the cup drivers are, or is it more of how tough cup racing is? And by that I mean like we saw Kurt Busch go down to IndyCar and finish sixth in the Indy 500. I know Kurt Busch has you know otherworldly talent, and but I would assume Kyle Busch would do the same. I think Jimmy Johnson will do great when he's in IndyCar, right? I, I just think their assimilation going that way is a lot faster and better than I feel like we ever saw IndyCar going to cup. Yes, I, I would tend to agree. NASCAR drivers in general at the cup series level, very good. Uh, but they're also thrown a lot of curveballs just in terms of different rules packages, let alone different generations of car uh, and the way the car feels if they hop from team to team. Uh, adjustment is just a way of life for cup series drivers. Uh, it's, you, you kind of have to be able to do that or else you're going to sink, especially in the modern era. And as we've seen with Kurt Busch, that translates at least for him to IndyCar. Uh, and yeah, I would be curious to see other drivers try other forms of auto racing to see if it sticks. Um, but yeah, Cup Series, pretty legit, pretty difficult. And um, when I think of Sam Hornish, I kind of think of eh, maybe a development plan uh, that kind of went uh, backwards than what it should have gone. Yeah, interesting time that was uh, with the IndyCar uh, drivers coming on over, but it uh, represents an era of, of the sports history. So Sam Hornish edition of Positive Regression, episode 77. All right, let's get it started. David, it's already that time of year. We did some of this last year uh, once the playoffs started, and with every round, we will continue to do the same, but we're already here in 2020. Uh, Requiems and fixes. 
the playoff field is set. That means there are some decent teams that are not in the playoff and have to start thinking toward 2021. And uh, some of these teams, Dave, we're about to discuss have a whole lot to think about because uh, the drivers won't be there. So uh, each of us, we're going to talk about, uh, we have four teams we're going to talk about, I guess the first four that didn't make it, right? And uh, talk about what they did well and what they did not. So I'm going to start with uh, the number eight team. Uh, Richard Childress Racing, and Tyler Reddick. David, Tyler Reddick, currently 13th in your peer score. That's higher than any other rookie in terms of production. That is better than drivers this year than Eric Jones, Clint Boyer, Matt DiBenedetto. Uh, he's driving the 17th fastest car, and he averaged finish right now 17.4. So that's pretty much on par. He's doing what he should with that car. Uh, looking at it, he has pretty good passing stats relatively. Bad top 15 efficiency. That means he's running in the top 15 a lot more than he is. Well, not a lot more, but he's finishing. He's running in the top 15 more than he's finishing in it. And that's not what you want to do as a cup driver. When he crashes, David, he crashes terminally, if you will. He's not coming back. These aren't small crashes. We saw that Sunday night, uh, throwing a big block up in Daytona, uh, going for the win. Kind of understand that. But when he wrecks, it's, uh, it's a big deal. And, uh, I think his biggest weakness there, uh, was, and you look at his stats, uh, bad restarter, David, for, especially from the non-preferred groove. And we can, you know, we'll talk about this in a second. I don't know if that's a rookie thing, getting used to cup or just having to adjust, but his stats coming from the non-preferred groove, losing a lot of positions across the year. Uh, if you can just polish that up, you know, I, I, we're seeing a young driver with a lot of promise. I think this, a lot of what I just talked about for a rookie is pretty damn good. There's obviously going to be some weakness. Uh, one of the fastest cars on drafting tracks. I think uh, he can capitalize on that next year, maybe even in Talladega this year. Uh, so I, I, I say overall, I don't, you know, I would expect a few weaknesses, David, out of a rookie, but I don't think he was all that bad. No, not at all. And you mentioned restarting specifically from the non-preferred groove. Uh, his retention rate, I believe, ranks 10th in the series right now. And I want to highlight how far Tyler Reddick has come since his first season in the Xfinity series. His retention rate in the non-preferred groove in the Xfinity series was 33%. And now, mm. now he is a top 10 uh, position defender from the non-preferred groove in the Cup series. That's that's quite a growth for for Tyler Reddick. I mean, and that that sort of is the uh the product he is a shining example of what the Xfinity series can be wow i mean i i thought a lot of reddick this year uh i think when i see uh a team like rcr uh doing things like machine learning or becoming the test team for the generation 7 car they're thinking of alternative pathways to success Tyler Reddick is setting himself up to be the beneficiary of all of this, but uh, he has the tendency to go a little bit too hard, uh, <laughs> kind of a uh, maybe in past years, it was the Kyle Larson effect. Recently, we've seen it with Christopher Bell uh, and this year with John Hunter Nemechek, but he dings the wall pretty good. He's riding that high line and he's doing some damage. Um, that has had an effect on his race result. Eventually, that kind of thing 
stops being endearing. I think we we like seeing it and and we certainly admire a driver really trying to push the limits of his car, but eventually maybe just keep the car intact and that can get you the finish that it was initially designed for. That's probably the next step going forward for him, but I don't know, do you have a fix for these guys? Uh, I mean, you know, fix up the, the restarts a little bit. Uh, I don't know what exactly the fix would be uh, other than that, because look, he's a rookie. I'm just, I'm just not being overly critical. You know what I mean? Obviously they would like, uh, want more speed out of, out of them. Um, I feel like he's raised the bar at RCR, right? I mean, uh, just looking at the stats and how he's finished and how he's driven and the promise that he has, that was an upgrade, right? They made an upgrade over Daniel Hemrick last year. Uh, you know, moves like that are tough to make, uh, personnel moves and bringing in new drivers, but that was an upgrade that, that seems like it's pushed them forward and given them a bright future. Uh, I think we saw better results than probably a lot of us expected out of RCR this year. Yeah, I think so too. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head. This was, a driver change coming into this season and you'd be hard pressed to argue that they didn't get it right. All right. Uh, next up, Eric Jones, David, um, requiem for the team because the driver certainly won't be there. So how do you approach this one? Yeah, I, I tried to just look at their season as a whole and understand what went right and what went wrong. What went right, Alan, was actually a lot. Eric Jones was the second most efficient passer on 550 horsepower tracks. He was also the second most efficient passer on 750 horsepower tracks. He was the third best position defender on preferred groove restarts. And for that matter, he was the best position defender on preferred groove restarts uh, aged 26 or under. So bright future there. But from a team perspective, a lot went wrong. They averaged a 14.4 place finish in the 2019 regular season. Compare that to this year, 17.6. Not going to cut it. So yeah, 3.2 positions off of where they were this time last season. And in 2019, he won the the race at Darlington, and we remember that. But a little prior to that, he had a four-race stretch in which he finished third, third, second, and fourth in consecutive races. This was a team that was knocking on the door of something great. They eventually won the race at Darlington. They made the playoffs. And then that first round, we've talked about it before, four points from three races that includes the disqualification at Richmond and not to, not to push this narrative, but it seems as if they have just not recovered. They didn't have any kind of stretch like they had last year. This year, their speed ranking dropped from 11th to 15th and they were the 18th fastest car on 750 horsepower tracks, and this is Eric Jones. This is a driver that has won a lot of short track races. Their median box time for pit stops dropped from 8th to 12th. Wow. And that's, hmm, considering this is a Joe Gibbs racing product, I would expect that to be a little bit faster. They've made the change already. It'll be Christopher Bell in the car for 2021, and Chris Bell could offer 
some, if not most, of what Jones does well. But a team going backwards in speed and ultimately results with the same driver has more going on behind the scenes. Are these 10 races for the playoffs the last stand for crew chief Chris Gale? Maybe, but I can't freely pinpoint an upgrade that's realistic, right? I, I can't say go pay Cole Pern $5 million to be your crew chief because that's, that's probably not going to happen, right? But something that we can point to is that pit crew. Uh, again, well-paid since it is a JGR pit crew, but clearly it is last on the JGR totem pole. The other JGR pit crews all rank within the top six of the median box time metric. If speed isn't a given, then the pit crew, which could prove more relevant in the choose rule era, needs to live up to the billing and the pay they receive. And for me, that is the fix. Better pit road performance for a 20 team with a new and and young race car driver. Interesting. And anytime you have these big multi-car teams, right, someone has to be on the bottom, right? They're, no matter what, even if you're all the best, someone is the fourth best, right? That that that's what, that was my question, the disparity. I, I didn't know about the, uh, the pit crew time. That was interesting to me. But you did mention the speed disparity. Um, look, someone's got to be fourth best on the team. But that, that seems like a big disparity compared to the Kyle Bushes, Denny Hamlin, and, and Martin Truex. Where do you think that comes from? Are, are those crew chief decisions are those organization uh decisions about you know trickle down whether it be equipment i don't even know what question to ask how how does that disparity come about and what do you blame it on i think at any place there's going to be an internal hierarchy yeah just based on on you know the employees who's there how long they've been there um it can be a number of things could be sponsorship coming into the program how much revenue they're bringing and what's earmarked for your race team uh, it was clear that the 20 team, look, this was not built the same way as the 11 team. Chris Gale isn't Chris Gabehart or Adam Stevens. Uh, and that was clear in both speed and performance. Uh, and as we pointed out, they had a lot of bad finishes uh, towards the end of the race. There was just a lack of awareness. It was either on the driver's part uh, or... It was the crew chief not, you know, letting the driver be aware of, hey, a position is done and dusted. Bring that car down from the wall, ride a lower line so we can bring home this decent finish. That may have lacked as well, but overall, the kind of finishes that they were getting were, you know, 28th and 30th and 34th, and those are just bad outings. If the car simply finishes where it runs next year with Christopher Bell, then that's improvement on paper. It doesn't totally tell the story of what occurred this year, though. And I think there's a lot going behind the scenes. And while it's tough to flat out say the crew chief needs to be replaced, if you're going to replace him, I mean, it should be for a better crew chief. And right now, I don't know that one is just freely available. So the fix that we can home in on is something that is in-house and conceivably correctable. Go go and get better crew guys if that's where money is clearly being earmarked. I think the performance needs to be there to justify that. And 
This is JGR. Uh, apparently, they've they've already said that money is eh, not no object, but it's not that much of a concern. At least that's what's been bandied uh, so far this year. But yeah, how they how they go forward with Christopher Bell. I don't know that it's easy. I don't know that performance uh, improvement is so easy as a driver change. I think there's a lot that has to go on behind the scenes in order for that to occur. Interesting stuff. A lot of changes that we'll have to go on and see for 2021 for that number 20 team. Another team that will go through many changes, David. Next up, the 42 team at Chip Ganassi Racing. I'll take this one because, look, what a year, obviously, for the 42 car. Uh, you know the story. Four races with Kyle Larson, average finish. 11th, not doing too bad. Then Larson did something massively stupid and wrong. So we know that story. Then came in Matt Kenseth. David, you did a great analysis early on. I hope everybody remembers it and gives you credit because it was this beautiful spider chart, right? All the success you showed us of the 42 car was being delivered via Kyle Larson, via the driver, the spider chart. It shows you all this color and different, you know, uh, aspects and measurements where you see color on a spider chart, that's where production is. And it's split between, you know, some of the decisions a crew chief can make and, and what a driver can uh, produce, if you will. All the color on the spider chart was all from the driver. So not so surprisingly, once the driver left, David, the 42 struggled big time. And again, for those who don't remember, your analysis told us, you wrote a whole article about it, that Matt Kenseth was probably going to struggle. He would not be productive, as many people thought a guy like Matt Kenseth or the name, the reputation it might bring. David, the numbers show us in terms of production. Matt Kenseth ranks below this year the names Daniel Suarez, Brennan Poole, and Ty Dillon in your peer stats. The speed of the car suddenly dropped after the driver change, and we came back to racing. Uh, and I'll put it to you this way. This is the last thing I want to say before we talk about fixes, because, David, you measure late race statistics, the, the final tenth of a race, right? In in the 22 races Matt Kenseth was in, he made just two restarts within the top 14 in late race conditions. So think about that. At the end of races, only twice was he in the top 14 for a late race restart. That blows my mind when I think about that because it tells you he wasn't not even contention. He wasn't even a player for a lot of these races. If you've only got two restarts in the final 10th of a race, I mean, come on, you just weren't there. And the 42 car, it fell off once they made that change. And I know that's a big deal. I know they went through a lot over there, a driver change, eventually a crew chief change uh, that didn't seem to help much, you know, just getting them to the end. They've got 10 more races to kind of, you know, improve on stuff. But David, I, I don't know where to start other than go get a young driver like Eric Jones and, and start over and hopefully you get that, that talented driver that can give you the production that gives you a great baseline to start producing again. Yeah, and it, it should be said that this team was just in trouble before uh, the Kyle Larson incident. Uh, we mentioned that with Chad Johnston. I would have had to have imagined that your fix would have been to clean house. Ganassi has already sent Johnston his walking papers. Uh, Phil Surgeon is now on the pit box. We don't, we don't know what kind of crew chief he's going to be. Um, I, I'm willing to give him a shot, but yes, at this juncture, I'd have to agree a driver change is in order. And in some respects, Chip Ganassi Racing did this 
to itself because they had a program in place that was wholly reliant on the driver. And if the driver doesn't show up for work or is let go, you don't have much of a team left. And Matt Kenseth, great driver in his heyday, a NASCAR champion, but in his final year at Joe Gibbs Racing, he couldn't create his own track position in his partial season with Roush Fenway Racing. Same story. So to expect that he was going to come in and offer something that he hadn't been doing in the last four or five years was far-fetched. And the the logical thing occurred. He was hanging in there for a little while, but the, the car was uh, racing against, uh, well, competition that it's probably better than, and then eventually Kansas numbers fell off. Uh, somebody like an Eric Jones would be a tremendous get for Chip Ganassi Racing. And as I mentioned, the kind of track position creation that you can build a team around. But while we're at it, while we're making changes, can we have the crew chief and the pit crew and everything else? Can, can we have them come to the surface and also deliver good performances? Because in the year 2020 in the Cup Series, I mean, we've seen what it takes to be a perennial championship contender and uh, a contender for wins week in and week out. And it's more than driver. It's the entire package. And Chip Ganassi Racing is one of these teams that's not quite elite, but also not middling. And they need to choose one direction or the other. Can they become an all-around good team? It's going to take more than a driver change. This team has a lot of work to do because between Daytona and Daytona, this was frankly a lousy race team. Um, and it had even beyond the, the, the driver incident that they could not control. The majority of what is wrong with this race team is firmly in the control of Chip Ganassi Racing. We could probably do a whole episode on, look, for, fortunately for Chip Ganassi Racing, there are options available, good ones still, free agents for a driver. Um, where, where do you find a great crew chief, right? In the Cup Series? I mean, do you elevate somebody? Are they just out there? Are they as plentiful as these driver options that you have? I mean, I guess that's a that's a tough question to an answer for any team, but where does a good crew chief all of a sudden come from? Do you poach one? Um, that, that'll be interesting to find because you're right. They don't just need a driver. They need a, a crew chief and leader, uh, you would assume, uh, unless these next 10 races go really great. Uh, so, you know, where does that come from when you need a lot of stuff to fix your team? It's just uh, maybe that's a, <laughs> a question we can answer at a different time, but that's a big one, David. For sure. And, and I think we're going to – this. look, this is a trial by fire, right, for Phil Surgeon, similar to uh, Cliff Daniels. True. Last okay. year for, yep. for Hendrick Motors. And given time, but, it worked out. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> so you have, you have a, a, you know, Phil Surgeon was the race engineer for the 42 team. That's a vastly different position than crew chief. Now he's a leader and he's not only responsible for coaching his driver, he's responsible for the morale of a race team that has a pretty grueling work schedule. It's not a, it's not a fun job. I guess it's fun when you're winning, but it's not a, you know, great job with a solid quality of life. So there's some, some ego and, and there's some, uh, some, some mental health management going on. That isn't an easy position. I've talked to a lot of smart engineers that 
have no designs on becoming a crew chief for that matter. It's yeah, you, you get paid well, but the stress that goes with it is tough. And I think we're going to get a pretty good glimpse of what Phil Surgeon has to offer. And if it doesn't work, then yeah, turn the direction of poaching a crew chief that can clearly create a, uh, a winning functioning system that, uh, that maybe they can replicate. All right. Good stuff. And finally, David, the story, uh, maybe of the year, Jimmy Johnson's retirement missing out on the playoffs by just six points. We know he missed the brickyard because of COVID. We know they lost, uh, I think, 40-plus points because of a disqualification, and that has left them out of the playoffs and on this list uh, where we're looking for their requiems, what they did right, and what the, the 4018 can do next year. David, without Jimmy Johnson, tell us about the 4018 this year. Yeah, I forgot all about the the penalty at Charlotte. That was a massive blow to their playoff chase. I forgot about that in advance of uh, of last week's uh, episode. But I got to say, Alan, you know what? You and I were both uh, at the retirement press conference uh, for Jimmy Johnson last fall, and he talked about his goal was to win races and make the playoffs. And I, I got to tell you, he went down swinging. I mean, he, he re- really sure. not bad. He ranked sixth in pier, fourth in surplus passing value, that's a good race car driver still. And we have chronicled the speed for Hendrick Motorsports this season and last season and trying to home in on what has gone wrong. But Jimmy Johnson had to overcome that. But he also did a lot with a rookie crew chief in Cliff Daniels. And regardless of who the new driver is, the team is going to need to uh, give a little bit more than what Cliff Daniels gave Jimmy Johnson this season. The 48 team's retention on green flag pit cycles is 53%. That is on the low end of the series spectrum there. Retention when pitting from a top five position under green 14 percent. Wow. That's just terrible. And all in, they've lost 42 positions on non-drafting ovals. That will all have to improve. Now, I will say Cliff Daniels call for two tires at the end of the second Dover race. Two tires and go like hell. That was fantastic. That was awesome. Uh, but, I, I yeah, questioned but, it at first. I was wondering if he was going to go straight backwards, but he didn't. That was cool. We need more of that. We we need that kind of drive and ambition. This season especially, and to some degree last season with this current rules package eliminating some chances for track position, especially at certain tracks, the conventional methods for winning races aren't cutting it right now. And if this is indeed going to be a ride occupied by what we would assume as a young driver behind the wheel, the fix needs to be a more forward-thinking, driver-friendly pit strategy emanating from the pit box. It's possible that that can come from Cliff Daniels because I wouldn't expect him to call a race for 
a young driver that doesn't have the savvy of a Jimmy Johnson. I wouldn't expect him to call a, call a race like he would for Jimmy Johnson. He probably gave Jimmy a lot of leeway. Jimmy was passing for position. It wasn't vital that they gain every green flag pit cycle or short pit or do something unconventional. It probably would have helped in, in some cases, but next year, that buffer, that safety net that Jimmy Johnson provided, and it's kind of wild that I'm saying that. I mean, he, it's it was just a weird year for Jimmy as a whole. But yeah, he provided a safety net. That safety net is now gone, and Cliff Daniels is just going to have to flip the way he calls races. Um, Cliff's a young guy. He can adapt. We've seen older crew chiefs uh, adapt this season, and uh, I'd be curious to see if he can do that with his new driver. Yeah, what – I mean – Oh, I, I'm just thinking about Jimmy Johnson just coming up six points short, and there'll always be the COVID issue. But you wonder about the the, the massive point loss, the the ten points he lost. Remember, he was leading in Darlington, and if he makes it two more corners in the back stretch, he gets ten points for winning a stage, and obviously finishing out Darlington a lot better. Uh, as well as he's doing, you just it just makes you think, David, about him being in the playoffs right now, right? Um, and it just sucks. I don't know. I'm a storyteller, so that's one less story to tell. And uh, I'm just sitting here wondering, you know, how, how you could have fixed that. And other than uh, there, there were some times where I don't want to say over his head, but it looked like there was some just un Jimmy Johnson like moves, right? In uh, maybe forcing it too much or wanting it too much, if that's even a thing to to interpret. But when you look at the stats, he had a damn good year for his final year, and he still got ten more to go out on with the race. You know, still more ten more races, but. Um, just, just some uncharacteristic things that maybe led to, and when you look at them as a whole and then you see he lost out by six points, you're just like, oh man, that sucks. I'll put you on the spot and I'll ask you this question. What do you expect from Jimmy final 10 races? Balls out, man. I mean, just like he's been doing, I mean, just like we saw in Dover, right? I mean, when that carrot was out there, I guess maybe that helps race car drivers, a guy like Jimmy Johnson. The carrot was still out there in Dover. Uh, those first, I mean, up until the last, what, last five laps of Daytona, it was awesome to see him drive, right? We saw the aggression. We saw that, what was the weird second stage where they had to come up and it was the two packs catching each other, but it was really Jimmy Johnson leading that pack and not only catching the back, of the front pack, but also, you know, really being aggressive to get those points. And cause you knew what was on the line, uh, that, that carrot isn't obviously there anymore other than to get a standard race win. So I don't know if that changes anything, but I expect the same Jimmy Johnson we've been seeing all year. It only gets tougher in the playoffs. So it seems like the cream rises, especially when you are a playoff driver. So it's not going to get much easier, right? For, for the 48 to win. I think you just coined the phrase uh, "standard race win." I, I want you to tweet that as soon as he crosses the line and takes a checkered flag in the uh, the playoff. No, only only positive regression listeners will know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> all right, on to Darlington, David, because it is the start of the Cup Series playoff. But all three series will be in Darlington annual throwback weekend, which are always fun. So, uh, David, you know you you plan out the show and we we go over it. You wanted me to you wanted me to ask who do we think will be this year's Martin Truex Jr. in terms of looking for a title contender that emerges over the next 10 races. Uh, my first thought was, can I pick Martin Truex Jr. to be the Martin Truex Jr.? Is that what you're looking for? I thought that that's exactly who you were going to pick. <laughs> Just, you know, based on me knowing who you are. Yeah, of course you're going to pick Martin Truex. 
Well, no, I mean, yeah, let, let's, we could start, let's start breaking it down, especially at Darlington in terms of, you know, we, there's Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin with their points, with their skill, their race winning abilities, their teams this year, you know, moving on, right? We assume they will be championship contenders and be in Phoenix, but yeah, I mean, who can, uh, who will be the other two, right? Who will emerge over the next 10 races as someone to potentially challenge them? And I think just as we've seen, like we saw at Martin Truex Jr.'s championship run a few years ago, uh, he's, he's there knocking on the door. Doesn't have the flash, the, the checkered flags this year, maybe of other years to maybe put him in the forefront of everyone's mind. But he had that stretch of third, 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 what, second, third. Um, and he was right there at Daytona last week, right? What did he get? I mean, he was right he up there. fourth at Daytona, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, to... I hope no one is overlooking the potential of the 19 team uh, just running away with this thing because I, I think they have the potential to do so. It's just a matter of you know, a few more positions, and I think that's something they can do. Yeah, sometimes you just need to win a stage on a Daytona road course and not pit in advance. That that really uh, set my blood to <laughs> Ooh, boil. You're, you're uh, angry. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, it was just it was right there. Chase Elliott did it, and then came back and won the race. See, you can have both. Um, my pick for this. For me, uh, Kyle Busch. Okay. The fourth fastest driver over the last eight races and the most efficient passer on the 750 horsepower tracks. We've got two of those in this first round. And when I think about the 18 team, it's the defending champion. It's a driver and a crew chief that have won two of these titles. Just one win could tip things over because as good as Harvick and Hamlin have been this year, they've also been incredibly fortunate in that Kyle Busch and the 18 team have not been a factor. They've been dealing with whatever they have been dealing with. The moment they click, everything changes. And I think this is the team with the potential to be the wildest wild card because their ceiling, I would argue, so much higher than the other uh, 13 teams outside of Harvick and Hamlin going into the playoffs. All right. Um, well, I, we would expect, you know, as you mentioned, the stats for Kyle Busch in this first round, it's all about surviving and advancing, right? So when you look at the tracks, Darlington and then what, Richmond and Bristol, I believe, uh, when we look bigger picture, who needs Darlington to go well? Because that's where we're going this weekend. Who needs them to go well because Richmond and Bristol may not be their forte? Who are you looking at when when we have when someone has to get off to a good start in Darlington? Who are you picking? Yeah, I, I think this is a good question because when we watch this race this weekend, uh, there's going to be some over exaggeration of just every small mistake uh and and how impactful it is but the bottom four playoff finishers uh in the playoff opener last year were Kurt Busch, Eric Jones, Clint Boyer and Kyle Busch. Just two of them were eliminated from the first round. Kyle Busch of course went on to win the championship. He had a cushion though. He had stage points and that's where I think you need to have some concern for someone like Matt DiBenedetto. Not that things are going bad, but he has no playoff points whatsoever. Uh, Cole Custer and Austin Dillon are down there as well. They need what we'll call results on the board 
as soon as they can get them. And of those three, Alan, Cole Custer may be the most unlikely uh, driver among the 16 to make it. Kind of needs everything he can get. Stage points, finishes, just whatever. Uh, and Mike Shiplett has been good at delivering positions uh, when he can get them in a low-hanging effort. Uh, we'll see if that continues. I think it will. But Custer's Darlington finishes earlier this year, 22nd and 31st, and he finished 35th at Bristol. So seemingly not a good slate of tracks for him. I know he's had better outings in the Xfinity series, but this is not the Xfinity series. It's just, it's any points you can get, man. It really, it really is simple as that. It, that is, that is how, uh, these guys are going to survive because this first round, it is more forgiving than we probably give it credit for, but you can't be stupid. You have to go out and execute and get those points to, to stay in it. Yeah, and that's how I took the question in terms of people who need to take advantage if they, you know, have good runs at Darlington or had them earlier this year. So I'm picking someone like Eric Almirola, who is 12th and 7th in the two Darlington races earlier this year. And I picked that because if he can capitalize on that with the little buffer that he has, uh, his short track speed, David, has not been great. Uh, so when I think Richmond and Bristol, I know it's not a big sample size. We actually haven't been to a lot of short tracks so far this season, but the speed that he has shown, according to motorsportsanalytics.com, not as great. So if you're, if you have a track that maybe you're better suited to, you better take advantage of it. So someone like Eric Almarola, uh, I think needs a good Darlington. I, I put Alex Bowman in that same, uh, category, uh, second at one of the Darlington races earlier, 18th in the other one. But if you can have that second place type race, that's pretty good when you are showing, showing poor short track speed, at least according to the numbers overall in 2020. So, uh, that, that's how I interpreted the question, David, as someone who, drivers who need to take advantage where Darlington may benefit them, maybe a good race. You got to take advantage of the places you're good at. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, so I keep talking about the other two Darlington races. Uh, we had them back to back. Remember that that's where we came back to racing after the long COVID break. So David, back to back races way back in May. Uh, what did we learn from those two races that we're now going to a third kind of unprecedented? I would have to believe, um, at least in recent times. So what, what, what data, what, what did you, what was your takeaway from two races at Darlington that we can maybe apply when we're trying to predict or forecast the third one this weekend? Yeah, I, I think it was just movement as dictated by cautions. Uh, there were 19 total restarts across those two races. And I'll get to the restart dynamic in a minute. But when you have that many cautions just built into, into those events, uh, that can make things a little bit interesting in regards to pit strategy. I've used the example of Kevin Harvick uh, and Rodney Childers skipping um, one of the stops on, it was like maybe two or three successive yellows, and he got to the front that way without passing a soul, had a little bit trouble in traffic, but got through traffic just simply by leapfrogging them by not coming to pit road. That kind of sequence, those successive stops is going to allow for that kind of movement. I don't know that passing is going to be 
as wide open as possible. This is a 550 track. Uh, drivers are, are going to be hard pressed to take things into their own hands, but that also means that they're going to really press when they do have the opportunities. And that's cautions creating restarts. I talked about this last week when, when talking with Matt DiBenedetto, there's an opportunity for something like eight positions sometimes on restarts compared to two on the ensuing green, green flag run. And, and this is where you're going to see a lot of the pressure come to the surface <laughs> that you're going to see, uh, a lot of, uh, wild, unrelenting restarts. We saw that from the preferred groove certainly this year. Uh, the outside group out retained the inside 92% to 16 and a half percent. Okay. So, so that's a big problem, but the, the cars on the inside line, a lot of them, and I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the restarters that aren't so hot, uh, really treated it as if it was an opportunity to gain position. And I think the choose rule is going to force teams to comprehend where they're at on the racetrack, maybe for some awareness that previously was not there. The inside line, if I'm being honest, that's a defensive position. If you're there, you are merely trying to keep your spots. Uh, I think that is going to be incredibly difficult. I'd love to see how that outside line stacks up. I believe that's going to dictate this race. Uh, ultimately, when we're talking about the winner Sunday night, we're probably going to have to look back and see how well he restarted, how smart he was on the decision-making, but ultimately it's the combination of both, that awareness. That's going to have to be there, or else you can just forget about winning this race. Interesting. Um, every week we do our contrarian contender picks. Um, maybe, you know, we try not to pick the obvious, right? I think Denny Hamlin, Kevin Harvick, the obvious. We try not to do that. Maybe give you a little value to your fantasy team or daily fantasy picks. So, David, I'll let you go first. Who is your contrarian contender for Darlington? I'm kind of hoping I steal your pick here. Ooh, don't do it. I'm going to pick Tyler Reddick. No, right, you didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he earned a seventh place finish at Darlington, uh, earlier this year. He'll er, 13th in the, uh, the second race. Uh, and this track sort of suits what he's been doing. Again, I'd like for him to not get too many Darlington stripes this weekend and be able to salvage a finish out of this. But I think there's some motivation on the table. Alan, I didn't know this was a thing, but I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw uh, a post about Cole Custer winning the 2020 Rookie of the Year award. I thought immediately that it was fake. No. Turns out, oh no, that is real. Yep. By by virtue of making the playoffs, Cole Custer's the Rookie of the Year, but there's 10 races left. I'm hmm, I'm confused by that one. Yeah, but. that's how it was last year too. Yep. I think that might be enough motivation. I think we, we might see, I think we might see both of the rookies perform really well, uh, during the stretch run, but for Darlington, I think my pick is Tyler Reddick. All right. I'm going with someone I already mentioned, Eric Almarola. Uh, I know, I, I, hopefully he's not running too well to consider him a contrarian contender, but that's who I'm picking. Uh, just because I, I think, you know, lately he's been showing himself, uh, we've talked about this before, David. Um, I brought it, the SHR cars, right? There was Kevin Harvick and there was the other three. I do feel like 
Eric Almirola lately has uh, shown himself as the second best car uh, on for SHR stable, and that is a good thing. Although Clint Boyer did have a good uh, Darlington run earlier this year, I'm sticking with Eric Almirola. Uh, good speed in the last uh, eight races. Good speed on, uh, you know, relatively on, on the 550 tracks and just the stats I was saying before, 12th and 7th earlier this year. Uh, just re-signed again for next year for SHR, has some security behind him. It's the playoffs. Uh, I think uh, Eric Almirola provides you good value on Sunday at Darlington. You know what? His passing has actually been pretty good this year. That's actually that's not a bad pick. I'm not necessarily <laughs> picking winners. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. top, easy top 10. I'll go with that. I think Eric Gummerl, easy top 10 for your DFS squad. Now you, you mentioned, uh, earlier that you feel he needs to perform well this weekend. Do you think he goes through to the second round? Ooh, ah, oh, I have not studied that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think he's consistent enough, and especially in this first round where they're just lopping off four at the bottom. I think you do. I think he does. So, uh, too good of a team, uh, been there before, and I just think there are enough drivers and teams under him that he can advance into the, uh, to the, to the next round. He can make it through, especially with a good run at Darlington. <laughs> yeah, he only needs to be better than four. Exactly. So fair play. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, cool. Uh, Well, we have our pick set and and, uh, so you can uh, light us up online if we don't do well for your team. But another good episode, David. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes, it's available for free at posrecpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This does help in spreading the word. We, of course, notice and it is appreciated. Uh, tell your friends, get that word of mouth going because it really does help us if more people are listening and having, uh, being smarter race fans. It's a one big circle and it's all very helpful. <laughs> if you have questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. We love answering your questions and love the questions you guys come up with, frankly. Uh, David, you're always working hard. I saw you just posted an article recently. What are you working on? Yeah, posted an article uh, about Matt Benedetto. spoke with him about his own contract situation. He is actually just waiting on Wood Brothers Racing to decide whether they will pick up his 2021 option. Until that happens, he's trapped. Uh, so it would probably benefit him to run very well across the next few races. And I'm also working on a piece for motorsportsanalytics.com highlighting Kurt Busch Serial overachiever. I interviewed him and asked whether he could sustain his uh, very often better than expected results. And he acknowledged that, uh, yes, for the playoffs, all that would be tough to duplicate. And he zeroed in on a few areas for improvement. Uh, so he spoke about that. I analyzed it. It was all uh, interesting stuff. So do check that out. All right. Good stuff. Make sure you watch Race Hub every night, Monday through Thursday, 6 p.m. Eastern on FS1. And make sure you watch the trucks this weekend on FS1, 2 p.m. on Sunday, Sunday, Sunday from Darlington. First time we've been there, the truck series, I think 2012. Uh, so I'm personally excited. I've never called a race at Darlington. So uh, that, that'll be a personal uh, big one for me, both professionally and personally. So that should be fun. Truck series been really fun uh, lately. Uh, those young guys. Guys, uh, just sending it. Sheldon Creed doing whatever. Todd Gillen's been fast. Uh, good storylines over there, and still got a few more races before their playoff starts. So make sure you watch the Truck Series. I'll be there on pit road. 
Thank you all for listening. Another good episode of Positive Regression as we get these cup playoffs started. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.